This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. Heading into Thanksgiving weekend, the Ford government acted on the advice of its team of medical experts and advisors, deciding, given the recent numbers of new cases of COVID-19 in Toronto, Peel Region and Ottawa, something had to be done. So modified Stage 2 restrictions were imposed on residents and businesses in those three hotspots. The provincial patient ombudsman also recently released a report into long-term care saying, what's clear is that we must prevent what happened from happening again. Joining me to discuss, the Zoomer Squad. Peter Muggridge, senior editor of Zoomer Magazine, Bill Van Gorder, interim chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, vice president, Zoomer Media, and chief marketing officer at CARP. Well, I think the horrifying part of the ombudsman's report is the the deep-seated uh, lack of concern for any patient rights or any resident rights and the rights of their families. We have neglect. We have indifference. We have inconsistent communications. We have residents. One of them I thought um, talked about seeing, you know, dogs in cages on TV commercials dealing with animal abuse and, and having felt the same way uh, herself. And this is just horrifying that we would have this kind of Dickensian stuff going on uh, in this day and age with or without COVID. I mean, who are these people? What right do they have to impose, especially since it didn't work? It'd be one thing if we said, look, we had an emergency. We had two weeks of hell. We clamped down and we saved lives, but they didn't even save lives. So it's like a double whammy. It's bad, bad. It didn't work. And it was appalling. Bill. Well, I agree with uh, everything uh, David has uh, said, and the you know the really disturbing thing is none of these things are new from what we heard four or five months ago when we were promised uh, changes, uh, and the fact that uh, uh, complaints from whistleblowers, people are who are trying to tell us what's going on, are being ignored. And the inconsistent rules and, and, and messages and the inconsistent approach in long-term care has left not only the residents, but the families completely confused about uh, what they should or shouldn't be doing and what's really going to assure the health of their loved one. And Peter. Yeah, it was, it was a terrible report and a, a terrible uh, set of circumstances in, in the first wave. So let's just hope they don't happen in the second wave. You know, mm-hmm. let's, let's hope. The industry cleans up its act, its act and, and, and makes sure that none of these complaints are uh, valid this time around. Closing thoughts now, beginning with you, uh, David. I think that all of these discussions underscore the fact for our listeners that you have to look after yourself. You have to protect yourself. You have to assume that the systemic decisions are made, lockdown here, closure there, limit here, you're in, you're out, red light, green light, are at this point uh, largely political, and that um, you have to pay attention to your own environment, uh, masks, distance, hand washing, um, 
the regulations aren't going to uh, be of much. Uh, uh, they might be of little help, but they're not going to be as decisive as what you yourself do by keeping informed and staying safe. Peter. Yeah, well, on, on Thanksgiving, I, I'd like to express my thanks towards, uh, you know, long-term care workers, especially PSWs. They have a terrible, uh, you know, terrible conditions. If they speak out against them, they're clamped down on, you know, their jobs are threatened. Um, you know, they don't have protective equipment. They have, uh, you know, hospitals that come in and take over and boss them around. And they, they just have a very difficult time uh, with very difficult working conditions. And I've seen them in action, and they're wonderful people for the majority, and uh, just like to thank them on, on Thanksgiving. And Bill. I want to certainly echo what uh, Peter has uh, said and agree with uh, uh, David. CARP is going to be pushing very hard for action now to fix the issues that we all see in, in front of us and uh, planning for the future in our own business lives. We're very used to uh, looking after the current uh, issues, but planning for the future life of the business. There's no reason why government can't do the same, and that's what CARP's going to be demanding. The Zoomer Squad, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, Vice President, Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. We were warned heading into Thanksgiving weekend that Ontario could be on the brink of disaster if families didn't pass on big gatherings while passing around the turkey, mashed potatoes, and cranberry sauce. That's a warm-up act because Christmas is coming. And should we approach it the same way? I spoke with Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Well, it would be a nice thing to be able to say that the uh, measures that come back uh, are going to give us an indication pretty fast and pretty quickly. But look what's happened, Bob. We've got uh, a change in the number being tested. You only test if you've been flagged as being quite likely or you've got symptoms of some kind. That's going to shift the uh, the denominator. And uh, that's also going to change the more important figure, and that is the positivity rate, so the proportion come back come back positive because let's face it if you have invite everybody to get tested uh and then you switch to only the people who have symptoms or a bit suspicious then obviously your the positivity rate the number of positive in the number of testing is going to shoot way up how much of that increase is actually due to natural increase and how much is due to a change in the in the uh, uh characteristics of, of being tested if I sense then you disagree with this, so should they have stayed the course or done something differently? Well, they should have done differently, Bob, months ago. has changed the whole idea of testing. We are still, I think, 39th or 40th in the world in terms of how, how, how much of testing we're doing per million population. We should have been bringing in, for example, pooled sampling. That's uh, got enormous advantages, especially for large population. We should have been bringing in rapid uh, sampling methods uh, months ago. Other countries have been doing this. Even the United States is probably the worst example of how to run a pandemic. Uh, they've got uh, more than a dozen rapid tests already approved uh, about a, six, six or eight weeks ago uh, for use. So Britain has been running a, a complete city, a Southampton on the south coast. It's been running rapid tests to its whole population in that city. 
way ahead. How can you begin to track a virus and know where it is in order to control it and let everybody get back to normal if we don't actually know who's got it and who doesn't have it? If we're only looking for the people who have symptoms, then good chances they've got it. What about all the friends, neighbors, and family who probably are spreading it around and nobody knows? We're getting through Thanksgiving. We've got Christmas coming up. I guess the same thing should apply. We just should uh, watch the gatherings and uh, just be careful. Oh, absolutely. Christmas, New Year's, no matter what the, your background is, it's, it's, an, it's a most important time of year. And for people in the hospitality, restaurant business, that's when they make their, their sort of yearly money mainly. Let's, let's, for goodness sake, try and get this thing nailed down before Christmas season comes along. I mean, it, it's painful. People are fatigued. They're tired. They've been listening to this now. We're in that, into our ninth month now, believe it or not, of hearing the same message. But let's not, let's not forget it. Let's not, let's keep it going. Follow this down. Let get the virus gone. And, uh, let's keep it there for Christmas and New Year. Are you concerned that the modified stage two in the three areas, Toronto, Peel region and Ottawa might extend beyond the 28 days? It depends on how the population reacts. You can put in any stage you like, but if the people ignore it or they don't, uh, they don't follow through, it's not going to have any effect. So it's it's up to our, our population. We've done it already. We brought the first wave down to a very low number. Even in Ontario, we were down to you know much less than a hundred a day new cases. Uh, that's not really a great achievement. You're still getting 100 people more than 100 people yesterday and 100 people the day before, but at least it wasn't a 900 or 1,000-ish for the large area. So, yes, let's let's make sure we do it. Don't don't forget. And the message is to get out there. The media is doing a good job, a nice middle road between the doomsdayers and the denialists. Uh, but let's just hold the, hold the course and, uh, and do a good job here, bringing it down to zero. Yep, I think we'll, if we look over the fence at what's going on with the dumpster fire south of the border, we can look, we look really good. Uh, but let's not look down there. Anybody would look good compared with that. But let's, uh, let's make sure we've got our house in order and we're keeping it, uh, keeping it spotlessly viral free as much as we can. Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Coming up after the break, counting down to the U.S. presidential election. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Donald Trump's back on the campaign trail holding crowded rallies without masking requirements, telling crowds he's strong and vital and ready to kiss them after his bout of COVID-19. He's also said he wouldn't necessarily accept the results of the election if he loses. The polls show him trailing and the gap widening, but you never know. Libby went around the strategy panel table with Charles Byrd, managing principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Predicting Donald Trump one way or the other is just a, is just a, a fool's game in some cases because you just don't know um, with, with respect to what he's going to say or what's going to happen. Or quite frankly, you know, I don't think Joe Biden is having a particularly strong campaign. I think he's making a lot of gas. I think that 
more than now that he's uh, out there in the public more and more, as opposed to his basement, uh, you know, you're seeing and, and hearing him make some of those gaffes. And I think that some media uh, outlets are reporting it, some aren't. But nonetheless, that said, I think people are going to go to Joe, uh, Joe Biden only because they hate Donald Trump. Uh, so as far as the polls go, Libby, and I've always said this, that they're a snapshot in time, and uh, but I do think that they reflect a trend. Uh, and a trend that's been, I think, going uh, in Joe Biden's way over the course of the last, I'd say, couple of months, certainly the last few weeks since uh, the president got COVID and, and uh, his re- his return and, and so forth. I think the, tr- the trend line has been going in, in Joe Biden's favor, although the national popularity polls uh, are, are less are me- meaningless uh, as opposed to looking at the various states that are that are what, what they call, you know, sort of, you know, battleground states for for, uh, for the Electoral College votes. And I think in those, uh, Joe Biden is leading, although I have seen some states uh, where the uh, the numbers narrowing, so I just I, it's, it's it's still unpredictable. I do think it's in Joe Biden's favor now, uh, and um, you know, and we're a few weeks away. But you know, apparently six or so million of Americans have already voted, and that's a, that's a telling sign in, in and of itself. I guess the question is, uh, he's trying. I think he's what he's trying to say to people is, I had it, I beat it. It's no big deal. He's going back to that, and I would think that people who have been sick or have loved ones who've been sick or God forbid died, uh, you know, that's ne- not necessarily the right message. Karen? Yeah, I agree with you, Libby. Like, you know, I think that, um, you know, there was a moment in time, I think, where his campaign team thought that he could use this moment to pivot and be more empathetic and be more uh, seen as a leader who's going to bring a national strategy to help contain this virus. But instead, he, he just, he did, he, again, he did what he does best, which is to go rogue. So nobody really knows what the messaging is because, and as we saw, even when he's using Anthony Fauci's quote to support his campaign, he's then, then tweeting against him. <laughs> so it's, it's just, it, it, it is all the markers of someone who has nothing left to lose and he's just throwing everything at it and nothing's really making sense. I, I, I think he right now, to be honest with you, he's his own worst enemy. Charles, do you agree with that? On the one hand, if the current polling is correct, Joe Biden can expect to win a landslide victory or something approaching a landslide victory. Uh, You can expect huge down-ballot implications in terms of House and senatorial races, which means the the Congress as a whole being remade in favor of the Democrats. Uh, The Electoral College map, as John mentioned, the battleground states are everything. But the bigger problem is, and you've seen this in his most recent tweets of just a few minutes ago, Donald Trump keeps coming back to how this is a rigged election and how uh, vote-in ballots are fraudulent without any evidence for saying as much. But what he is doing is casting into doubt the results of the election. Because the U.S. Constitution is actually very vague, if you can believe it, on the subject of how someone becomes president, which is to say that, you know, there's a there's a national election, and then by a certain date in December, the College of Electors meets on the basis of, of the voting result. And then by date certain in January, a new president is sworn in. So it's it's a big open question what happens if Donald Trump says those vote-in ballots that haven't been counted don't count, and they're all fraudulent anyway, and I am the president, and I will be sworn in in January. And we will have the long-promised constitutional crisis that... Uh, that many have mused about. It just seems to be coming more and more real. The Fight Back Strategy Panel, Charles Byrd, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. 
This is the best of fight back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. In its first annual Homeland Threat Assessment, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security says supremacist extremists will remain the deadliest domestic terror threat to the U.S., and they're certainly a big factor on social media, which knows no borders. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's announced the company's new policy that'll ban posts that deny the Holocaust or distort facts surrounding it. Here at home, the latest statistics show that the Jewish community remains the most targeted by hate crimes. But there was a recent violent threat against a Toronto mosque which prompted it to close, and there have been more than 600 incidents of hate-targeting East Asians within Canada that have been reported to Chinese-Canadian groups since the pandemic hit. Is any of this a spillover of what seems to be a more visible presence of white supremacy south of the border? Libby talked with Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants and a former analyst with CSIS, as well as Noah Schack, vice president GTA for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Certainly the threat from the far right in the United States has been that, that way for quite some time. Uh, even if they have had Islamist terrorist plots in places like San Bernardino and Orlando, et cetera, et cetera. Here in Canada, we've had uh, plots from all kinds of actors. You know, we've had uh, jihadi plots. We've had far-right plots, some of which were successful, uh, some of which we foiled, thanks to CSIS and the RCMP. So I, I would not go on, on a limb and say that one particular threat trajectory is any greater than the other. I think they're all important. And I think we have to ensure that we have the resources to investigate and stop these, these violent actors from carrying out actions of violence that can kill and maim people. Noah Shack, first of all, what is your reaction to Facebook finally saying that it is not going to tolerate Holocaust denial? Well, th- that's something we've been speaking with Facebook about for quite some time, and we're very pleased to see this step being taken, not just because Holocaust denial is offensive um, or that online hate promotion is offensive, but because it it, it forms a gateway for uh, radicalization. The only reason that the Holocaust is denied is in order to cast dispersions on Jews and to create um, a sense of a Jewish plot that feeds into all kinds of anti-Semitic stereotypes that are part of the radicalization process, uh, not just for white supremacists, but for uh, Jew haters across the political spectrum. And unfortunately, anti-Semitism is as much a problem on the extreme left as it is on the extreme right uh, and everywhere in between. It's a toxic virus. And our hope is that by confronting some of these online phenomena, we can help to uh, prevent the spillover from the internet space into the real world. And during the pandemic, while so many of us are spending so much more time online, um, this is really an acute problem. We saw the uh, individual who uh, shot up a synagogue in San Diego that over a period of 18 months, uh, he, he self-radicalized online. And, and uh, if we're going to have any hope of confronting this hatred before somebody picks up a knife or a gun, uh, it starts with these smaller incidents. It starts with the smaller uh, phenomenon of things like Holocaust style and hate promotion. And if we uh, make a concerted effort to address those problems, uh, it'll, it'll help uh, with the, the violence that, that, of course, concerns us all. Holocaust denial isn't some innocent thing, isn't some intellectual exercise. This is something that's done exclusively with a purpose and a hateful purpose. 
And, uh, you know, there's, there's no, the, the issue here isn't about people questioning facts, historical facts. Mm-hmm. It's about people misrepresenting facts about the most heinous episode in human history in order to drum up some of the same hatred mm-hmm. that led to the mass murder of Jews, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in living memory. And I think that that's what distinguishes it from from you know just open debate and open discourse uh, around an issue. And and I think we we have to look at that. We have to look at what what is this speech really all about? What is it for? What is the purpose? What is the objective? Uh, before we we weigh in and and determine whether or not it's hateful. And 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 there's also a difference and a distinction that I think more Canadians need to understand that uh, something can be hateful and not criminal. And, and, you know, as we are, are engaging with what do we do about hate speech in our society, sometimes it's not rise to the level of criminal hate promotion, but when it is, it needs to be prosecuted. And, and we haven't seen very many uh, prosecutions of hate promotion uh, here in, in Canada for a number of reasons. Okay, and Phil? Um, Go ahead. I, I, agree, I agree with Noah. I mean, you know, Holocaust denial is simply unacceptable on any level. We may disagree on where that line that, you know, Sam talked about, you talked about Libya. It, it is tough. It's tough to, you know, go from freedom of expression and difference of opinion to actual hate. Common sense makes a lot of sense to you and me, Libby, but common sense is not the law, unfortunately. And I think that we will continue to struggle as humans to determine what's okay, what's not okay, and what's criminal. It's again, sorry, I've used it again, Libby. It's complicated. And I just wish we had an easier way to figure this stuff out. Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants and a former analyst with CSIS, as well as Noah Schack, vice president GTA for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is UMA Radio's Best to Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio and here are some of the best calls of the past week. Catherine in Toronto has concerns about the quality and variety of food served in long-term care homes. I'm not suggesting that you feed people in long-term care absolute junk, but it lacks variety and it's not the healthiest at all times. And I'm sure this has been investigated. And if you read a Harvard thing, they're even up in there about the importance of it. But I do know that if you have a, a strong, healthy immune system, uh, you can still get the coronavirus and other and cancer and anything else going. However, it wouldn't be so aggressive and there's a better chance of surviving uh, than if you have a, a weak immune system. And aging definitely lowers immunity. You don't produce things like zinc iron, lots of vitamins that are really important. I mean, what are you doing in long-term care, just washing and sticking food in people's mouths and it lacks variety? And how much is there in the way of fruits and vegetables? You know, and older people eat less, so what they eat should be good for them. 
While he gets the need to improve the long-term care system in the province, Barry in Oshawa called in to ask why something has not been done to improve home care. I have a concern that, you know, we talk about the the dire conditions that exist within our existing long-term care homes. But the thing that I think we're missing here is that as an alternative to hoping that we'll improve the conditions within long-term care, we need that. But at the same time, what are we doing about in-home care as the alternative to, they're not going to build any more long-term care homes in Ontario, but why aren't we addressing the need for improved in-home care? That's what I can't understand. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Lucky Diane in Burlington, who had no trouble getting her flu shot. Two weeks ago here, my family doctor had a drive-through uh, for people over 65, and uh, both dosages were available, depended on what you wanted, and it was so successful. And I'm I'm not sure if he has planned another drive-through uh, for younger people or not, but knowing him, he probably is going to do it again. They had the two, there was a nurse who came out uh, and helped us. Uh, all you had to do was roll down your your window in the car and get your flu shot. That does it for today's best of fight back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightback libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.